2: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, British movie The King's Speech leads the nomination for the year's Academy Awards with 12 nods, including Best Film and Best Actor for Colin Firth. According to the BBC, the Coen Brothers' Western remake, The True Grit, has 10 nods, while Social Network and Inception have eight each. In national news, President Barack Obama will propose a partial spending freeze to show his determination to join Republicans in tackling the deficit, but it probably will not be enough to avoid a bitter fight over budget cuts, according to Reuters. Obama's State of the Union address to Congress will be tonight at 9 and will stress a search for common ground on efforts to boost growth and jobs. White House aides say Obama will call for a five-year halt on non-security discretionary spending increases, extending a previous call for a three-year freeze. Such a freeze would not apply to big entitlement programs such as Social Security and Medicare at the heart of America's deficit problem. Discretionary spending, excluding money for security, makes up just 13% of the $3.7 trillion U.S. budget. Obama is widely expected to use his lengthy address to highlight his shift to the political center and to begin the process of winning back disgruntled independent voters who will be central to his chances of re-election in 2012. And in Michigan News, former Governor Jennifer Granholm and her husband Dan Mulhern Mulhern, excuse me, are leaving the state to teach at the University of California, Berkeley for two years, according to the Detroit Free Press. Granholm will teach courses on energy, leadership, politics, and the economy. Mulhern will teach business leadership. The couple plans on writing a book about leading Michigan at a time of great economic turmoil. Granholm also will be a paid contributor to Meet the Press, NBC's Sunday morning political show. And on exposure tonight... Uh, We will be uh, talking about MSU's research in fuel-efficient vehicles, as well as the legacy of Mozart, and we will also have on the phone uh, comedian Kevin Shea, and he has appeared on Comedy Central Premium Blend, Jimmy Kimmel Live, as well, and, and was... Uh, NBC's 2009 Stand Up for Diversity winner, and he'll be performing at the Union at nine this Friday. But in the studio is now is singer-songwriter and MSU graduate student in vocal jazz, Tamara Mayers, and she's in the studio to talk about her travels around the world as well as to perform. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to see you here. So you were born in the Virgin Islands.
3: Yes. Talk Saint about Corrine. the the music that you were that you grew up with. Just well, pretty much. Um, of course, calypso, soca, reggae, dancehall, all of that stuff. Um, some of it was very traditional. Some of it was just American influence, actually. There's a lot of hip-hop. There's a lot of jazz. There's a lot of rock, alternative rock, things like that. So um, I pretty much grew up on that type of music. So were you always singing at, at a young age and always in the performance scene or the music scene? Not really. Um, <laughs> my, my earliest memory of, of singing was when I was three years old. My favorite group was Kool uh, in the Gang. And my mom told me that I used to walk around the house with my arms spread out singing Cherish of Love at the top of my lungs. Nice. <laughs> so I also hear
2: that um, you
3: were in the Air Force and were able to perform across the globe through that. Yeah, um, I actually joined this this uh, gospel choir called called the Aviano Gospel Choir, and we used to travel about once a month to uh, different Italian towns. I was in Aviano, Italy, and and we we put on these concerts sometimes outside, sometimes in churches. But no matter what, no matter where we went, the people were always appreciative, and they could barely speak English, but they would sing along with us, you know, with the songs that they knew, and it was just really exciting. And how did you fall into jazz? I literally fell into it (laughs) because my undergrad I was doing classical music for about two to three years and I had been listening to jazz my entire life but I always thought that it was too difficult and I didn't think that I had the technique required to sing jazz and this is pretty much how it went I was driving to school one day and I was listening to Ella on the radio station and I decided you know I'm gonna try this so I turned the radio down and um, I just started singing summertime, <laughs> and I sounded completely different in comparison to my classical voice, and I had never really heard that voice before. So I said, well, you know what, let me go talk to the jazz professor, you know, um, and I did, and it was pretty much the last two semesters of my undergrad, that's when I started doing jazz, and then I got uh, very lucky <laughs> and got in here to the, the MSU jazz, uh, jazz Jazz Department, and it's been just performing and singing ever since. All
2: because of good old Ella Fitzgerald. (laughs) Good old Ella. (laughs) (laughs) She's she's how I fell in love with jazz as
3: well. Oh, yeah. But without further ado, do you want to sing a song for us? Sure, sure. The first song I'm going to sing is uh, God Bless the Child with my friend Ralph Taupe on guitar. Welcome to the show, Ralph Taupe.
0: How you doing?
2: Whenever you're ready. Studio is Tamara Mayers and on guitar is Ralph Tope and she, and tomorrow you just sang God bless the child.
3: So tomorrow you're singing in the in the area this week? Yes I Tell am. Tell me about your upcoming performances. This Thursday from seven to ten PM I'm performing at Mumbai. It's on three forty Albert and it's a wonderful place, so great music. Should be enjoyable. Excellent. Um, So I'm curious, um, while
2: I was watching you singing, you have so much soul in life and in what you sing, and I wonder how different singing is is for you, um, having been trained classically, and the the feeling that you get, um, and I guess the emotions that you get when when you're singing classical versus how you may feel when you're singing jazz. Is there much of a
3: difference there for you? For me, there is. Um, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, when I was singing classical... I was thinking so much about the technical aspects of it, of making sure that I'm breathing correctly and things like that. And don't get, don't get me wrong, in jazz you think about the same things. However, um, I've had several teachers tell me you learn the, the, the technique and then you forget it once you start performing. You know, Not forget it as in forgetting your actual technique, but just, just sing, just have a good time, just enjoy it. And that's what I try to do.
2: And I also understand that before you kind of got in the jazz world, you were a spoken
3: wor- spoken. <laughs> I sound like a youper. <laughs> a, s- a spoken word artist. Yes, I did. I used to do spoken word poetry. Honestly, my writing was good, but I wasn't very good at. It. <laughs> I mean, the presentation know, aspect it. of it. Well, the presentation was fine. You know, um, uh, I think. I used to have an issue with forgetting my, my words, uh-huh. you know. So, of course, when you're a spoken word artist and you're speaking words, when you forget them, what else do you have? <laughs> so so that was my main issue with it. But, but for the most part, like, I enjoy watching everyone else that does it. Like, I enjoy watching them do it because I think that they're awesome at it and, you know— um, For me, it's less pressure doing music, actually. Well, what I found interesting
2: is that um, you used poems as teaching aids for victims of domestic
3: violence. Mm -hmm. And you also incorporated a lot of music in your spoken word poetry as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to combine the two uh, in regards to to the domestic violence. um, I used to volunteer with some organizations in Illinois where I would use my poetry as a means of kind of, you know, coming, well, speaking as if I was a victim of it. You know, so so coming from that voice and and somehow coming from that voice kind of helped them do 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 uh, do their own jobs better when it came to dealing with with people who who had had actually been you know been through those experiences. So um, so I ended up getting invited to a lot of different conferences and and to different meetings. You know, um, in Chicago, in Miami, and in St. Louis itself. You know, and just. It 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 just kind of became a second job for me uh, at a certain point in my life. So you're now
2: focusing on composition and arrangements. So are you writing your own
3: music now? Oh yeah, <laughs> that was the whole point of me coming to school. Really? <laughs> but, I mean, uh, yeah. Honestly, um, I've been writing songs since I was probably about earliest I can remember uh, is probably nine years old, um, and. I would write the actual words you know but I didn't know how to write music you know so the whole point of me coming to school to study music was to actually learn how to write music that way I can write down what it is that's in my head and share it with everyone very cool um, so now now that you're at
2: MSU you're you're in the jazz department are you specifically are only looking at jazz right
3: now or are you dabbling in other genres as well well um, one person that I really, 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 really love to listen to—well, well, one of several—I love Fela Kuti, and I don't know if you know who he is, but but he he's considered like the the, the father of Afrobeat. Okay. So I tend to like you know music with that t- that type of groove—a combination of funk, of jazz, you know, of of uh, of gospel, of just you know, I'm pretty much trying to involve everything that I've learned, everything that I've experienced thus far in life, and trying to to put it into my compositions and, mm. and, and into my arrangements. You know, some are s- successful and some are still works in progress, but that's the whole point. So what kind, what kind of feel would you say most of your compositions are like so far? Afrobeat, jazz? That's the funny gospel, thing.
2: everything, a fusion of all?
3: Yeah, that's the funny thing. Like, there's no one consistent thing. Like, I have some things, you know, something that's a combination of funk and reggae, and then I have something else that's like this odd metered, you know, in 7-4... Um, uh, like Latin feel, you know, and then I have other things that are just ballads, and then I have things that are just straight ahead jazz, and then I have things that are blues, you know, with a different kick to it, too, so. Well, is there sometimes. anywhere where people can check out these compositions anywhere? Or are they not yet released? Not yet released. Um, sometimes you may catch me performing s- some of my uh, compositions and arrangements on my live performances, and at this point, I'm just kind of uh, getting ready to. Work to To work on my first album this year so I'm doing all of this composing and arranging and then performing with the intent of okay I'm ready I, I can go inside the studio and I can do my thing and feel comfortable with it. Excellent. Well with that do you want to sing one last song for us? Sure. Um, I think we said we're going to do Autumn Leaves. Uh, we're going to do Autumn Leaves. Alright. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>
0: And gold, I see your lips, those summer kisses, those sunburned hands I used to hold since you went away.
2: in the studio is Tamara Mayers and her guitarist Ralph Tope. Thank you so much for joining us tonight.
3: Thank you for having
2: us. And again for our listeners, tomorrow we'll be performing at um, Mumbai on Thursday evening. Do you know what time that is?
3: Between 7 and 10pm. 7 and 10 and then you also be performing at Leroy's Classic Bar and Grill on Saturday. At what time? On Saturday that's at 9, from 9pm from 9 to 1am and that's with the Jeff Shout combo. Well again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Bye.
0: Promised that he'd care for me, but all I saw was misery. I stayed at home each night alone while he ran around, painted the town. I thought I'd let the blues get me down. That's why I'm strolling round.
2: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and with the North American International Auto Show ending in Detroit, in the studio is Professor Giles Brierton of the Department of Mechanical Engineering, and he is here to talk about his research with fuel efficiency and engines. Welcome to the show.
4: Thank you very much.
2: So talk about what MSU has done so far as far as the research with fuel efficiency, because I know we got a new laboratory in 2007. What has happened since then?
4: Um, Since 2007, we have been looking at ways in which various biofuels burn and what kinds of products of combustion, pollutants, emissions result from them. We've been looking at new control systems that can make engines operate more effectively and under better control so they perform better, use more fuel. We've been looking at ways in which engines... uh, start under very cold conditions which are sometimes the hardest to control their emissions at and we look at um, computer simulations of all the details of everything that happens inside an engine as the gas and the fuel mix and burn and undergo combustion and expand and we use um, transparent models of what goes on inside engine cylinders to let us measure what might happen in the equivalent of a real engine.
2: So... we'll so, oh, keep going.
4: So we, we do those kinds of things to better understand what happens inside the guts of an engine and how to make it better.
2: And what are your hopes for this research? Are you looking to build a new type of engine or, you know, a new series of cars and uh, that are going to be well, on the road someday?
4: Well, we're, we're really looking at... Making engines more efficient, finding better fuels for them, and producing fewer pollutants in three very simple um, objectives and these have been very long held objectives of the entire um, engine community, transportation uh, community, so make them more efficient, so they 're less fuel, so they use less fuel um, and make them produce less pollutants.
2: So I understand that some of of the ideas that you've floated around and researched is um, the idea of turning waste heat into electricity as well as um, using various, as you said, biofuels um, and using those into energy.
4: Yes, absolutely. When when an engine burns, say, a dollar's worth of gasoline about about thirty cents worth of that goes to driving the wheels about thirty cents thirty cents another thirty cents worth goes to heating up the surroundings and the other forty cents worth comes out the tailpipe as exhaust gas so when you run an engine the return on your every dollar you spend on gasoline is about thirty cents worth and that's unavoidable Um, you you, in uh, No, according to the laws of nature, when you try to convert one kind of energy into another, you will always lose some amount. Now, automobile engines run at about a 30% efficiency. um, With about 40% of the fuel energy going out the exhaust pipe as hot gas, it's very attractive to try and recover some of that energy. So we install inside the exhaust system what are called thermoelectric materials. Um, These are materials that, in the 1950s, um, they were used in Russia to power transistor radios. You put a thermoelectric uh, sensor on the... uh, on the flue of your stove, you'll get a tiny electrical current from it because there will be a difference between the hot temperature of the exhaust gas from your stove and the cold outside temperature, and you could just about power a little radio from it. Um, Since then, there have been some very important developments in the way people make materials and the way people design the molecular structure of materials that lets them make much, much better thermoelectric devices. And so we can now use those smarter materials to build devices that we could put in the exhaust system of an automobile or a ship or an aircraft, anything else where we might like to, and recover several watts or kilowatts of energy, which we can then use to run various accessories in a vehicle or charge a battery.
2: So the goal in this research is is to be more efficient rather than try to um, wean away from our, our dependence on oil?
4: Uh, no, it's both. Both? Okay. Both, both. Uh, one of the challenges the United States faces is um, one of energy independence or its lack of energy independence. Um, The US imports a huge amount of foreign oil, a large amount of which is used for transportation, and for various security purposes, it would be very attractive if we did not have to import so much. And so one possible solution to that is to use biofuels. Um, For example, in countries like Brazil, sugar beet is used to produce ethanol, which provides a large proportion of their fuel for automobiles. Um, The U.S. isn't really big enough to grow that much sugar beet, but there are other clever things you can do with um, various kinds of cellulosic matter to reduce it to something like an ethanol that you could run in an engine. And efforts in that direction can reduce our dependence on um, foreign oil, which is not always a reliable source. So, yeah, we work on those things, too. We have a colleague in the Department of Chemical Engineering who is very clever with microbes, microbes that can chew up huge amounts of all kinds of feedstocks and turn them into whatever the microbe likes to turn them into. And then with a couple of clever chemical reactions that presumably don't require much energy, you can turn that into a fuel that you can burn or blend with other fuels. And if you can do enough of that and can produce sensible volumes at reasonable prices, you have an alternative to the fossil fuels. And so we work with our colleagues in chemical engineering in blending biofuels that can be used to run engines.
2: And when do you see that, that happening in the future, that people will be using these biofuels? I know that there was a big you know, debate with the idea of F- ethanol for a while, but mm-hmm. uh, these other options, when do you think that people will, will, it'll be a viable option for
4: us? Well, to a large extent, that's uh, a function of government taxation policy. Uh, if you compare the U.S. with Europe, in the U.S., gasoline is given away. In Europe, the taxation is much, much higher, and that's by choice. (laughs) And so the result of that is that it's in the consumer's interest to buy the most fuel-efficient vehicle possible. Uh, It's a matter of energy policy as to how much the United States chooses to tax gasoline and chooses to subsidize or not tax uh, other fuels like diesel fuel or ethanol or various ethanol blends, and so with the current taxation structure it's not likely at all. However, if uh, the politics were to change or if other matters were to change, then the federal government could change significantly its taxation policy on fuels and completely redirect the country towards different fuels. So that's all government policy.
2: And do you think that the U.S. will ever, um, you know, go away from, from oil and then and switch to biofuel anytime soon?
4: I think that depends on the um, political stability of the regions from which it imports much of its oil. And sometimes the U.S. worries about these things and sometimes it doesn't. So it, it depends on global stability. Now, um, it's not widely known, but... The country that the U.S. imports more oil from than any other country is, in fact, Canada. And we have very good relations with Canada, and long may they continue. But oil is obviously imported from the Middle East, other places. Um, There are environmental disasters like Deepwater Horizon, um, disaster that caused so much damage to the Gulf of Mexico because of need for um, drilling oil as a fossil fuel. And so our dependence on oil has significant problems.
2: Well, in the studio is um, Giles Breton. He is with the Department of Mechanical Engineering, and he is here to talk about his his research with fuel efficiency as well as engines. So where can people go for more information about um, what, what you guys are doing in the... In the in the laboratory, uh,
4: we have a website that you can get to through the Department of Mechanical Engineering's homepage, through the standard MSU pages. Uh, that's probably your best source for a, a brief overview.
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight and educating us on biofuels and fuel efficiency.
4: Oh, it's a pleasure. You're listening
1: to
2: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
1: We've just received word of an
0: invasion Speak quickly maggot, is it those Canadians again? I
1: don't know sir, we just heard that Monday at 8pm The Impact will be invaded You stupid ninny, that's the Asian Invasion It's the poppiest, catchiest and all around Toe tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan and China But
0: sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music private That catchy beat knows no language
1: barrier Now move
2: out everyone sir, yes, sir. The Asian
5: Invasion Monday nights from 8 till 10 I- <laughs> The
1: Impact For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
2: Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area.
1: Only on
2: Impact
0: Primetime. Now back to
2: Impact Exposure. Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. The MSU College of Music is celebrating Mozart's birthday this Thursday with musical performances and Professor Marcy Ray of the College of Music is in to talk about Mozart and his legacy. Welcome to the show Marcy Ray. Thank you very much. So tell me what what makes Mozart so special? I hear he was composing, you know, when he was around 5 years old and was, you know, had operas by the time he was, you know, 13 or so. How, how can such a young person compose like that, and what made Mozart so special?
1: Well, there are, there are quite a number of things. I mean, obviously, innate talent had a lot to do with it, but also his unusual and exceptional education. He did start playing the keyboard at age three. Uh, he taught himself the violin at age six. He was composing at age five, and this was a product of a musical family. His father was a violinist and had published a violin treatise in the year of his birth, uh, Mozart's birth, and um, they toured Europe as a family for three years when he was very young, at six, and so he got exposed to um, all the great composers of the period, all the national styles, and absorbed it into his own training. And so after those three years of traveling throughout Europe, he was a very fluent composer. And also during that time, he was giving daily concerts. And during these concerts, they were testing his genius. And so they would call out a note um, or they would sing a note and ask him to identify it. They would sing a melody, and he was supposed to uh, compose accompaniment to it. Or they would say, song of rage, and he would, uh, in, in nonsense words, he didn't yet know Italian or, or Latin or any other languages really yet, other than his native German. And so in nonsense syllables, he would compose an aria in the latest style. And so on a regular basis, he was performing and composing music, and that really is exceptional. So
2: we know Mozart as a musician, but what do you think Mozart was like as a person?
1: Well, there are, there are a lot of sketches. Of course, many people have seen the 1984 Milos Forman film, uh, Amadeus. And from that, we get a sense of his childlike personality. And part of that is myth, and part of it can be gleaned from, from actual sources. He was a small person, apparently frail, uh, very pale, uh, a big head, apparently. <laughs> and so people saw him as a child, uh, and he died very young. Uh, but he was known for having a really great sense of humor. Uh, in letters to his family, he often engaged in scatological humor, which he's, uh, for which he's famous, I think, and, uh, but generally good-natured and good-spirited.
2: So what, what was the role of music in public life during Mozart's time versus what it's like now?
1: Very different uh, concert life existed in in two main formats, one in the on the concert stage. Uh, which is similar a little bit, that distance between audience and performer is similar to what we have today. But certainly during that time, people were talking, they were laughing, they were eating, they were drinking, they were engaging in card games and so forth. They were there not just for the music, but to be seen by others and, and experience social life. Then there were the chamber concerts where people are far more intimate and they paid more attention to the music in these settings because you're right there upon the performer. And so people were engaging differently with the music.
2: So was classical music at the time only meant for the elite?
1: Not entirely. Uh, Especially in his later works, we'll see that uh, the Magic Flute, for instance, was for a public theater. But a lot of the music in the early part of his career is for um, nobles, elites, and so most of his performing in the beginning of his career was as a servant to the court. I see, I see.
2: Um, and also, um, MSU performed one of Mozart's first operas this year, um, La, F- La Finta um, Giardiniera Giardiniera, okay, <laughs> thank you for the pronunciation, and he was only 18 at the time
1: Absolutely, he started he composed his first opera actually when he was 12, it wasn't performed because there was uh, gossip around the musicians saying he didn't actually write this, his father wrote it, so they postponed it, um, but the same year he performed his first comic opera, Bastien and Bastien, um, actually Actually, in Mesmer, Anton Mesmer's garden, and he's known for mesmerism. And that comes up later in a parody in his opera, Così Funtutte. Now,
2: do you think you you hear about people that they rise at an early age and then they just, you know, they kind of... Peak or you know they or they plateau I should say, um, and I know that you know Mozart I believe died when he was 35 That's or so correct. so that was, so it was kind of early but you know do you think having him rise so fast was detrimental at all later in his life he did he get
1: burned out at all do you think I don't think so. Uh- he, there was a suggestion when when people saw him at an early age performing throughout Europe that oh he's a he's a, a fruit that will fall from the tree too early. A lot of people suggested that that genius really can't last a long time, and that idea of keeping him as a child in. Um, Biographies right after his death. They really wanted to mythologize him as this eternal child. Um, But he's a transitional figure in the sense that he was first a servant of the court and then became an entrepreneur, and that was very new at the time. And so while maybe he wrote fewer pieces later on in life, it was because he wasn't receiving commission. So it was through his own effort that he was composing these pieces. So he wasn't getting as much money for them as he was in the beginning of his career.
2: So what do you think was Mozart's biggest success or legacy?
1: Well, he developed and... He really developed the classical style. What we know is that um, really clear architecture, formal procedures, tuneful melodies, um, beautiful melodies. And to light accompaniment, that classical style is really embodied in his music that he developed in all kinds of genres, the opera, the symphony, chamber works. And I think to a large degree, uh, Beethoven and many composers after his death really felt like they were living under the shadow of Mozart.
2: Yeah, I can definitely see that. happening. Yeah. <laughs> and then after
1: Beethoven, certainly people felt that way as well.
2: Exactly. Um, so talk about the event that's happening on Thursday at the um, at the music building. What, what type of music will be performed? And you're also speaking at 645. Talk about kind of the layout of the performance and, and what people can expect.
1: The music is to celebrate his birthday, which is on January 27th, which is this Thursday. Um, he would have been 255 years old. Wow. And uh, the performance is uh, a bunch of his chamber pieces. And they're a really eclectic blend, largely from the 1770s and 80s, so his 20s. And um, and it features a certain different qualities. The first piece is called the Kegelstadt Trio. And uh, it was one of the first pieces written for the clarinet, a relatively new instrument. And when it was premiered, he, uh, Mozart himself played the viola. Um, another piece, the Flute Quartet number 1, was commissioned by an amateur flautist. And so it was meant to be fairly easy for this amateur to play. But it's very, very beautiful. Um, there's a four-hand piece, which uh, has two pianists at the same piano, and it was actually something that Mozart composed for himself and his sister to play, so there may be some kind of sibling rivalry indicated in the score. And then finally, the quintet, one of his wind quintets, and that was a sp- specifically new genre that a lot of people who study wind music and band music kind of look to his early wind symphonies and quartets uh, and serenades as the beginning of a, of a kind of ensemble
2: well in the studios professor um, marcy ray and she's with the msu college of music and they will be celebrating mozart's birthday this thursday at 7 30 p.m at the music building auditorium and professor marcy ray will be giving a presentation about mozart and his history and legacy at six forty-five in the music building auditorium marcy ray thank you so much for joining us tonight thank you very much Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Kevin Shea. Um, he is a comedian. He has appeared on Comedy Central Premium Blend, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and was NBC's 2009 Stand Up for Diversity winner. And he'll be performing at the Union at 9 p.m. on Friday. Welcome to the show, Kevin Shea.
6: Hey, how's it going?
2: It's going, going pretty well. Um, so, Talk, talk about talk about your performances. Um, you you are you now on the on the university circuit now that you're coming to MSU.
6: Yeah, well, I've been on my tour started last uh, August, well, mid August. So from August to December second, I was on this college tour. So I was on the road for almost three and a half months. So this is pretty much like the tail end of it. Yeah, so I was doing like sixty to seventy colleges.
2: Oh wow. So it was,
6: it was, yeah, it was kind of nuts.
2: So how did, you, how did you get into stand-up comedy?
6: Well, uh, geez, back in 2001, uh, I lost my job at uh, Alta Vista. So I was like, oh, man, I need to do something. So I was just like, you know what? I hate office work, so I might as well try to stand up. So I stayed in the Bay Area, and I was like, that was pretty much it.
2: Wow. I feel like being in the Bay Area and just deciding you're going to go into stand up comedy would be hard. Was it, was it, it an easy switch for you?
6: Uh, well, you know what's weird? In San Francisco, there's a huge comedy scene. So, you know, it wasn't that hard to get into. I remember, you know, it's funny. I was just in Palo Alto uh, two days ago, and I started my first set ever at the Rosen Crown right near Sanford's campus. And uh, it was awful. There was like four people in the audience and they were falling asleep. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> so it can't get any worse than this. So I might as well keep doing it. So, you know. Uh, you know what was really funny is I uh, I was on hold while you were on the interview with that last girl.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Right when I came in to listen, uh, I just hear, oh, he, he, he was a genius. <laughs> uh, he was an apple that fell. Too early. right too soon. There's no way he can live up to it. I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you. I know I'm pretty much into my stand up, but I didn't realize other people were. And then she was talking about Mozart. I was yeah. like,
2: oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We weren't talking about you. But uh, so, so so tell me, you have a pretty diverse family. Talk about that.
6: Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you can't get any more diverse. I still think modern family stole my idea. I think so and so my bio. I was like, let's turn it into a show, and we'll use Al Bundy. And I was like, Jesus, it's my life. They took it. So pretty much, this, uh, my parents are white, and I have two white sisters, and there's three adopted Korean kids in my immediate family. So, so uh, it's pretty mixed.
2: So what was that like growing up in a in a, in a you know a mixed family like that?
6: Uh, it wasn't like uh, Angelina Jolie's house, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> A very middle class. It was. It was all right. It, you know what's funny is I have probably the most unique family life, but probably the most normal of all my other comedian friends. I'm probably like the one of the few comedians whose parents are still together. Mm-hmm. You know, in divorce, and I, I didn't grow up in like a hippie house where their parents smoked pot or something. Just a normal family. We just happened to be a bunch of different colors. Right. Yeah.
2: So just so just normal. Yeah, I can can see that. Um, So just describe your comedy. What are types of things that you usually talk about?
6: Oh, geez, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. Pretty much, you know, it's developed from, like, shorter one-liner jokes to longer stories. It's pretty much my life. And, uh, you know, lately I've been telling this story a lot on the radio. And, you know, it's starting to develop into my head. One time... You know, we all have friends. You have friends, right, Emily? Yes, I I have friends. You don't just live in the studio.
2: No.
6: Yeah, of course. And they kind of make you do things out of guilt. Because you don't want your friends to know that you do certain things, right? Okay. You're you're kind of influenced by your friends. And I remember a long time ago, it was like right when I was graduating college, I had a party. I didn't want anyone to know that I had uh, hooked up with this girl because uh, her nickname was Sasquatch. I don't know if kids can be mean, but I didn't think she was that bad, right? Right. So uh, this is during a party, and she had asked, hey, do you want to go back into the party? I was like, sure. She was like, oh, let's go. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to go out the window. And i mind you, this is a second-story house.
2: So that's so, a good idea.
6: Yeah, yeah, very great, very smart. So it's something with knowing. I had been with Sasquatch, I went out the window, you should have seen the look on her face, it was kind of crazy. So I'm hanging from a second-story siding, you know, like the roofing, Mm -hmm. and I'm hanging, and it breaks. And then all of a sudden, there's two girls smoking uh, right outside of the house, and they see this little Asian guy fall from the sky. He's fall, and they're like, oh my God. They just look at me, they're just smoking, they're like, oh, so it uh, looks like you hooked up with Sasquatch, too. I was like, oh, well, see ya. I just walked away. Yeah. Just because of my friends. I didn't want anyone to know. Now everyone knows.
2: Now everyone, now everyone in the listening audience now knows.
6: knows. Yeah, but it's ridiculous what you'll do to just avoid uh, getting harassed by your friends, your so-called friends.
2: That's right. So you, you were the winner of the 2009 Stand Up for Diversity Showcase. Talk about that, and, and what was that showcase like?
6: Well, it was pretty much uh, like a nationwide, you know, four different cities searched. What NBC does is, is they're looking for, you know, diversity and, you know, pretty much minorities to be a part of NBC, so what they do is they go for stand-ups all around the country, they break it down to Final Ten, and they bring them to L.A., and then you do a set in front of the industry. So it's a bunch of people uh, in the industry, and then after you do your set, they pick and choose the person to give uh, the deal to. So it's a year-long holding deal, and then you go to NACA, huge college program, and you get to do a set, and then that's how it essentially got uh this big college store
2: so yeah. what do they mean by stand up for I, they say the word diversity in it does that mean that they're just looking for people that aren't white or is it the matter of the content that you're well, talking about
6: you know what it is when they say diversity and uh what's funny it's diverse like not just color but like you know uh if you're gay or you know you're just different different from the norm i see uh and what was funny is Year that I had wanted uh, last year, uh, there was a white kid that was picked from Georgia. It was his first, uh, there was actually the first white stand up the program. And he went on before me and he was fairly new. And he had a kind of rough set. Mind you, when you do a uh, uh, set in front of industry, it's not like doing a set in front of regular people. You know, they've seen it all, they're kind of jaded, like, well, you know. And he had kind of a rough set, so I went on and just had a curiosity. You know, I just went on, just joking. I said, "Uh, how the heck did this kid get on the showcase? And I meant it because he was white. And they meant it like it was something, the audience, he had a bad set, and they all erupted, and I just sat there on stage Uh like, no, no, not because he had a bad set, no, because he's white. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was the first time I'm defending No, I was trying to be racist. I wasn't making fun of him. <laughs> so, I don't know. That probably worked in my favor.
2: Well, well, I guess everything worked out then. So, what what makes you laugh? You know,
6: what's weird is, uh, I think, uh, I don't know. I think just because of doing comedy so much, is, uh, I think the darker it is, the funnier it is. How so? I always feel feel like, um, uh, I I think if if something is really funny, it's probably also really sad at the same time. Uh, you ever ever walk down the street and you see someone trip in the ice? You're in Michigan.
2: Yeah, it happens.
6: What What is your first reaction?
2: Well, depends on who the person is. Um, if if, oh, okay. if people, let's okay. say, let's oh. say if some girls, if some girls are kind of prancing around the campus, they're wearing shoes that they shouldn't be wearing when it's, you know, freezing outside, when there's a ton of ice outside, there's a ton of snow, and they happen to fall. I think it's a little funny. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> but, okay. but if it's, you know, if it's like an older man or, you know, someone that's, you know, geared up for the winter and they know what they're doing and they just happen to fall, then I feel bad. So it really depends on the situation.
6: Okay, I understand if it's like a ninety year old lady with one leg. I right, I get it. I get it. Ooh, she should probably should not be in the snow anyway. But uh not even, even you have to mentally think about it. It's not an instant reaction.
2: Well it's an instant reaction depending on who it is.
6: <laughs> Maybe I'm just evil. I don't know what it is. I just I just every time I see it. This is uh, uh one of my big jokes is, um I don't know if I'll go over well right now, is uh you know, sometimes you don't go to what you want to be. Uh, for example, I was at Debbie's the other day, and I saw this waitress crying, and I was like, oh, my God, uh, where the hell are my eggs? It's, it's better set up in the club than <laughs> set up for the longer story. <laughs> and what's funny, it actually happened in real life. It happened in Sacramento. We were all out. And uh, this waitress was really upset, and we, we couldn't see it. And I just looked over my buddy, and the original joke was, "Oh my God, where's my orange juice?" And I don't know why. It just I guess just tongue-in-cheek mean is funny. Oh, I don't see. know. If it's just the way of times. It's just I think everyone is trying to be so PC nowadays. Mm-hmm. When you from levity to uh, actual meanness hilarious. You yeah, think, that's just me.
2: Do you think that you're saying everyone's trying to be PC, do you think that you're saying that specifically about the comedy industry, stand-up comedians are trying to be PC, or just everyone in general?
6: The society as a whole. Okay. So I, I think the first thing comedians are just people who are satirists, is that the word? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing they're going to go after. It's just because everyone's so sensitive about being PC and not being offensive. Uh, it's kind of a strange thing. And what's funny to me is uh, I perform mostly at colleges, and I find that some students can be very PC. Like, every college has their news, newsletters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like, uh, don't be racist, you know, like, you know, we get that, right? That's fair. And then, like, don't drink so much is a big one. And it always makes me uh, kind of laugh. I mean, this isn't funny, but, like, the don't rape nobody. And I'm just like, Jesus, like, who doesn't know that one? That one's pretty obvious. Like, what what dude is showing up to Michigan State like, what? You can't attack nobody? You know, this is bull. I'm going to transfer. You know, it's just like, this is ridiculous. It's funny that people need to be told not to do certain things, which are pretty obvious.
2: They need to be reminded. Well,
6: the university
2: has to say that they they did something, you know, (laughs) I guess – got to remind people when you when you when you see things you know in in the news um you know like for example the arizona shooting or something like that you know it's yeah. hard to say you know people shouldn't be reminded of some things that shouldn't be happening but you know
6: i think that guy i think that guy's a madman though i mean that picture just says it all and what's funny is with, with the situation with that guy from arizona which was all the situation always oh, going to be awful but uh it was one of those cases I was watching the interviews. It was not one person said, oh, I'm shocked.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
6: Surprised that he did that. It's like you see that in, like, other cases. But this guy had a long history of problems. It's weird that no one had stopped it prior. You know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm.
6: To me, it's just like, well, that one was pretty obvious. Like, someone should have stopped that years ago. Like we had this guy in college we knew and he ended up getting arrested for having uh uh child pornography and all of us were like, Oh, we're not shocked he was just that creepy dude and someone should have and he was a teacher. So like, how is this even possible? How is the system letting this happen? So maybe we do need maybe we do need those newsletters.
2: Yeah, perhaps, perhaps, then the moral of the story, perhaps we need more newsletters.
6: I just proved myself wrong. Maybe we need more Nancy
2: Grace. Perhaps we do. Well, on the phone is Kevin Shea. He is performing at the MSU Union at 9 p.m. on Friday. Um, He has appeared on Comedy Central's Premium Blend, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and was NBC's 2009 stand-up for diversity winner. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kevin. All right, thank you. All right.
5: I'm not your uh, typical minority, you know, that you see on the streets or in the park, stretching in slow motion. No, because I'm actually adopted by white people, you know, the devils, and I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Yeah, there isn't a lot of me, and uh, especially in my elementary school, I don't expect little kids to know the difference between Korean, Chinese, or Japanese. But one time, a little girl came up to me and called me a freaking Eskimo. That's not even the same continent. I'm like, why are you so quick to judge? Just because I wear a hooded jacket and really enjoy Klondike bars does not mean I live in an igloo. A lot of people will come up to me after the show, they're like, Kevin, do you make this stuff up? Are you really adopted, or you just make it up? I tell them, no. Kevin Michael Shea is an ancient Japanese clan. <laughs> Top of the morning to you. And then I river dance the hell out of there. All right, guys, I'm Kevin Shea. Thank you very much.
1: You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure.
4: At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station.
7: For well, the Michigan Storytelling Series, this is William Langford. I'll be reciting a poem entitled, Meditations on Detroit Bread. Perhaps Detroit's doctors use murder mittens to extricate Detroit's born and bread from their mothers' wombs like bakers do bread from menstrual ovens wrought in iron. It would explain the veneer of the survivors. Here... The cock's crow is a gun cocked at the business end of the law's long arm, or the fed-up end of those who end up dressed as orange barrels, or zebras. It is fitting that they fail to blend in our jungle, this sweet city, this sweet science. Rumble young men, rumble. Dodge the uppercut from the exodus of the upper crust, it's stick and move, it's stick or move from here. So strike teachers, strike union. No ding of the bell, not down for the count. This is the capo aria the head of our song, and I am its libretto. I want a Detroit poem that doesn't sound like this. I want a Shane Park Shaka Khan Soul Train Line Detroit poem. I want a Late Night Bite at American Coney Island Detroit poem. I want a Old Man Two-Step Jazz Groove Detroit poem. One that sounds like Kaz Tech High. One that looms like green in the dawn. Spirit-like, a Joe Lewis fist fighting back media limelight. This popular consensus derived from our census, that tells us nothing can grow here. I did, and I do. When a phoenix sings a night melody, I grow. When a D-dot bus stops for a straggler, I grow. When a politician chooses power over principle, we grow. I want a Detroit poem that sounds and smells like the eastern market. These apples grew ripe here. These flowers took root here. Compress our woes into nightly news in Detroit. Let's take back our daylight, city pride, high rise, Penobscot, New Year's bottle pop, absent of gunshots, good cops, river walks, and these chalk outlines are no longer the shapes of bodies. They are gator-toed Sunday shoes treading new ground. They are curb feelers letting us know it is in reach. They are the orange hollow of a basketball falling from a boy's hand. He knows he can be more than this. They are the shape of a river. Wrapped around our people. Lean in close. It's got something to say. Detroit, I love you.
2: And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was William Langford.
1: Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.
4: Podcast from Impact
0: 89FM.